This is Jason Poblet with the Global Liberty Alliance. Have you ever had a talk with someone that really took you back to a different time and place? Um, that's what happened in this podcast when I talked with my fellow colleague and lawyer, uh, Santiago Alpizar, down in Miami, Florida. We talked about a lot of interesting things, especially his journey out of communist Cuba. And I listened to him and I listened to the show again after we recorded it. And it took me back to 1983 and the very first time I met and attended an event with an American president in Miami, Florida was uh, Ronald Reagan. And he gave this very historic speech, uh, a speech that I still listen to every now and then. And also how um, it not only brought to life that, you know, that speech brought to life a lot of interesting issues back then, but how many of the issues we were talking about in this podcast today are still happening. And it's been, that's been, it's been a long time. I was 13, I'm 50 now. And there are colleagues down in, in Cuba who are fighting the good fight, independent lawyers, uh, human rights defenders, civil society groups. And they're still having almost the same type of conversation that we were having back when I was starting out in this sort of work. A lot has happened, of course, since then. And um, I, I think that there's um, a different foundation. And a lot of what Reagan said, a little, a little outdated today, but there's a few things in that speech, which is why I will include a link uh, on the website to it for this podcast that are still relevant today. I'm not going to tell you what they are because Santiago talks about a lot of them in his, in his story, not only coming to America, but the work he's doing now to hold human rights abusers to account, which is also a part of our core mission here at the Global Liberty Alliance. Um, and ultimately, it's people like this, and there's so many of them that I could have shows probably every every day for weeks, and we still wouldn't uh, cover them all, of people who are out there trying to fight the good fight and not only reestablish themselves in this country, but give back to this country and help people they left behind who are still suffering. And there's a lot of people still suffering just 90 miles away. And I hope you will listen to President Reagan's speech and, of course, pay close attention uh, to what Santiago talks about in this podcast and that you will be inspired to get involved with this and help advance the cause of liberty uh, in places uh, very close to home because the Western Hemisphere, as Ronald Reagan says, is the American Hemisphere and that makes us all Americans and that creates special duties on everybody to advance the cause of liberty right here locally in your neighborhoods in your towns, in your state, in your country, and of course, uh, right nearby with our friends in the region who uh, look to us for leadership and we look to them for the same and we have to support one another. So take a little time to listen to this podcast. And if you have any questions, as always, please keep the questions coming. Thank you uh, for listening. Take care. And welcome to another 
Global Liberty Alliance podcast coming to you from Alexandria, Virginia, right across the river from Washington, D.C. in historic Old Town, Alexandria. Today we're going down to Miami, my former hometown, where we have a very special guest, a lawyer, uh, human rights defender by the name of Santiago Alpizar, who for a long time has been quietly uh, but very effectively working to uh, not only help clients, of course, because he has his own private practice, but he's also very involved with uh, his former homeland of Cuba, where he's uh, done many projects. He's defended many dissidents and human rights defenders. And one of the reasons he came to my attention a few years ago, but we're only now starting to get to know each other, was a project that he started called Cuba uh, Repression ID. It's uh, four Cuban-American lawyers, uh, Luis Fernandez, Willie Allen, Santiago Alpizar, our, our guest, and Ricardo Martinez yep. Sid. Um, I, did I get all those names? Did I miss anybody? It was those four people. No, you're, no, you're right. not miss, you're missing anyone. Okay, that's great. And, and they started this wonderful project down there to identify and name Cuban state security agents and pro-government militants who were attacking uh, dissidents on the island. So he's going to talk to us a little bit about that. But before we get into any of the substance of this, and really the, the goal of today is to kind of go over his work, but also about the island and what's happening in Cuba and its legal system, because a lot of people here in the States, um, Santiago, don't really uh -huh. have a good idea about how the Cuban legal system has managed to survive in the, in the shape it has survived in. And I know you practiced law in Cuba before you came to America. So let's talk a little bit about that. But let's talk about you for a minute. Uh, welcome. Okay. How, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for uh, the invitation to your show, Jason. Uh, it's a great pleasure to me to well, participate. It's an, it's an honor to have you and, 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 and hear more about what fellow lawyers are up to, especially human rights lawyers. We, uh, you don't hear much about the work human rights lawyers do, but this is the work that they do. And we want people to hear about it, especially... Um, the, the work that you've done, because you come from a unique background. You were born in Cuba. You actually practiced law in Cuba after 1959, and then you left. So, so what happened? Tell us a little bit about yourself yeah. and how you came here. Well, I was born after the revolution took uh, over the government in Cuba, and the regime was already installed. I was born in 1961. I grew up in a small town in the center of the island, Placetas, a former province of Las Villas. And uh, I finished high school in 1978. I went to law school in Santa Clara. I got my wow. degree in 1983, after five years of school. And I combined my job there as a university professor and also as a practitioner uh, through the Bufete Colectivo, which is a collective law offices that are controlled of like anything else in Cuba, everything else by the government, but has a semi-practice uh, uh, instrumentality, instrumentality to represent people who got a legal issue to uh, resolve. And uh, I, most of my practice I devoted at that time for a, a civil and uh, Penal litigation. I was a criminal lawyer and also a civil litigation. And um, as a lawyer in Cuba, I was involved in a, a some interesting cases where I had to confront uh, agents from the government through enterprises or uh, simply 
uh, the what they call a, a police instructor or detective that were uh, dealing with some of my clients. And it was a very interesting cases like uh, the one that I have night, back in 1987, I believe, where a guy, a Chinese Cuban, by the way, wow. uh, came to me with uh, a contract signed between him as a owner of the, of the house that had need to be rebuilt uh, and a governmental enterprise uh, that was, uh, th their business was built houses for people who paid for uh, those services. And as a matter of fact, he was building at that time from his own little house, a three-story house. And uh, what happened is, uh, is that during the contract, the, uh, the government enterprise uh, or that was building uh, that house was they were stealing all the cements and wow. <laughs> uh, all the building materials. And uh, it was funny because when they were trying to uh, test the, the slab between two stores, uh, between one and the, between the first and the second store, it, it fell down over the people who was testing the strong oh, on, oh boy. On the oh boy. <laughs> that's the that's what was the turning point he came to me i sued the uh, for breach of contract in, in the tribunal they were very receptive to to the, that case because he was uh, i mean that guy was already before the press uh, and somehow the press pay attention to his demand and claim that they were not doing a great job in his house well and uh uh, the, the the tribunal was sort of shocked me at that time was very receptive of the of that case of my of, of our complaint and they started investigating i mean through the discovery we established that in fact there was a great a, a, a breach of that contract was a gross negligence everywhere and they all were on the scrutiny of the tribunal at that time and they came to me to settle the, the case and the house was finally built. Today, that house is the biggest uh, hostel in Santa Clara. Oh boy. And, and that one was one of the, the cases that uh, shows uh, how the system sometimes can be uh, fight using the, their own law, their own terms, and their own, their own conditions. And my client was very satisfied. I don't know if he's still alive or not. So, he was a great guy. That's he cool. was, he was a professor at the university. I got pay, pay great respect for that individual. He escaped from China oh when he God. was a child. Oh from home, from he was living in Mac. Uh, I don't remember. It's from South China. He came to Cuba. He got his accent, and he said, "I escaped from communism, and I got the communists are here." <laughs> I, uh, wow! You know that's yes, yes, That's an amazing story, and I I want to unpack a little bit of it because um, a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with with Cuba's legal tradition, and you know briefly. And we're not going to get too in the weeds with, you know, God help us, two lawyers talking law, but just briefly, because it helps people understand what Santiago did and why it was so amazing and how lawyering, even in totalitarian states, if you have a lawyer that's brave and wants to use the rules, can affect change. 
Cuba's a civil law country, so it's not like the American, it's American systems that are common law countries. And in, in a civil law country before the revolution in 59, um, uh, it's, you know, the judges in those countries tend to be the chief investigators. They, they are the ones who make rulings. They're not binding sometimes. Yep. You know, it, in a civil law system, the judge's role is to establish the facts of the case and apply them to the code. It's a little, very different from the American system. And what Santiago is describing, not only is it remarkable because it's uh, done within the communist system, but because the courts, and this is something that helps maybe our, our listeners understand this a bit, um, it takes a lot of courage, not only for you to take on a case like that, because as you described, uh, Cuba has what, what they're called buro colectivos. They're like uh, public law firms, and it, you can't have a private law firm in Cuba. It's not allowed. So you, you have to practice in this structure. But there's a little space that Santiago's talking about where he jumped into this during the height of the Cold War, and you decided, I'm going to help this guy. Uh, and figure out how to use the laws and the code here to have the judges see things my way. What, why did you do it? And what did you see there that you, you decided maybe we should try this? Because well, Yes, uh, re remember, we, had a, we always have a, a duty uh, to our clients to represent them when they have a justiciable issue. Uh, it has one, and I found the way to, in the civil code, it was a, as I mentioned, it's a gross uh, negligent case and a breach of contract and unlawful enrichment from that company that tried to steal the money from this guy that was honestly believed that they wanted to comply with the services he contract with. And uh, I, well, I just, uh, let me tell you, I was very scared to, I was, uh, I was around 23, 24 years old and uh, I had done some uh, other cases at that time, but I didn't want to, you know, start uh, picking into the judicial system, being a, you know, a guy who was always molesting the tribunal with things that they don't want to see before <laughs> them. But I decided to do it anyway. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I tell you, I had a great time doing it. I was very satisfied how I see those faces or those uh, guy that I, I believe they were caught on with the uh, dirty hands stealing from that uh, uh, honest guy and uh, they finally came to to the point that they uh, claudicate their case and uh, uh, we stipulate many things and we won greatly as a matter mm -hmm. of fact uh, he uh, my, my client uh, at one point and stop uh, a request for uh, auditing the company because that one will bring uh, that one probably will bring charges, criminal charges against all those guys. Uh, I remember at that time a very famous uh, a baseball player came to my office defending one of those guys from the company. Uh, in the name of the the baseball player Victor Mesa, everybody knows he was. He came to me and say. Uh, my friend lawyer, I want you to settle this case. My guys are just no. want to this being a stop because it would be a big problem with the whole company. And they want to satisfy your client, your client uh, claims. Uh, we, they are going to build the house the way it was uh, uh, planned uh, from the beginning. And that one was the end of the case. When this guy intervened 
everything was uh, concluded in satisfactory way for my client. So, so how? I mean, you have so many other stories, and uh, we're going to have to have you back because uh, he's told me so many interesting cases he worked on when he was in Cuba that I, uh, we have we could do a whole show on that. But what happened before we take our first break? What was that break where you said, you know what? I think I've done what I could here. I have to get out. I'm going to go to the States and just work yeah. from there. Like, mm -hmm. what, what was that one moment that you said, you know, batallas, we said, enough, enough already. What, what, what happened? Well, uh, back in uh, 1992, I won uh, a scholarship to complete a master's degree in Spain. Uh, and somehow after I was uh, applying for the scholarship, making my way to the uh, uh, Spain embassy to request a visa. Uh, well, at that time, I was not a citizen of Spain. I literally, I know that I had the right to be a Spanish citizen at that time. Well, anyway, uh, uh, a guy from the, uh, the, the Department of State Security, the, the political police in Cuba came to my office and say, we are not allow you to leave the country with a passport. We are wow. now giving you permission to go to Spain to study. And oh, they say, boy. well, this is, this is, this is it's enough for me. I was fed up at that time. I was being uh, treated um, as a traitor, as I never was a, I believe I never was a traitor because I never was a communist or part of the Communist Party or anything like that. Uh, that one is a, the issue that they always uh, regret on me that they, they couldn't entice me in being a part of the, or member of the Communist Party. Anytime they ask me, I say no. Anytime they say, do you want to be of the uh, Youth uh, Commons League? I say no. And uh, that one, one was a big problem that I had. They have no control over me. They right. cannot, uh, put anything, any pressure on me. I was a free man. I was a free lawyer within that structure that you mentioned. And uh, uh, one of the cases that I defend was aired by a Radio Marti at that time was a guy named like me, Santiago Medina Corso. I remember was his name. That one was a few years back. Uh, we are talking 1991. I defend this guy in 1989, 1990. He was a a doctor who was celebrating the Day of Human Rights Declaration, which is the 6th of December, 1948. And he was uh, uh, celebrating that day by place, uh, placing some uh, um, uh, little um, propaganda about that, the, the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in his right. office as a doctor. And because that one is a, a government office, he was charged with uh, enemy propaganda. Can you imagine that? <laughs> enemy propaganda. You know, I, 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 I think, Santiago, before you, the reason I'm laughing is that because this is kind of a, we're, we're leaving out, of course, that he and I are, are kind of uh, reacting in code here because I know exactly what he's saying. And it's kind of what you experienced behind, even a lot of lawyers behind the Iron Curtain you know, during the Cold War, uh, those that were brave enough to do what you did in Cuba. Uh, they would say things like that, and they would call you gangsters and traitors, and uh, it, so it, it kind of a it's a soft boil pressuring campaign to yeah. either to either do what Santiago said, join the party, 
because you're a young guy. If you want a future here, you know, he's a good, you could tell by listening to this guy, he's a good lawyer. So he, and he was brave. So, so they basically singled you out. They were, they were, they were saying, look, we need to either bring him in or he's going to have to be pushed out somehow. That's exactly what happened to me. And then uh, if they didn't allow me to have a, a passport and fly to a free country like Spain to complete my career and my life, I decided to escape. And, and I did it in 1994 when the lift boat, I mean, the Balsero era, in 1994, after uh, August 5th, was uh, what they call the biggest protest against the government, uh, right. the spontaneous protest, the Maleconazo. Right. And they opened, they opened the, the borders and people started escaping. And uh, I took that opportunity to uh, came to the United States in a small raft, rowing and sailing with another three people. And I arrived to uh, somehow... Uh, we are, we never landed. We were picked up by the U.S. Coast Guard and brought it to the rescue as post as thank God to wow. them wow. because we are heading to the Gulf uh, at great speed and uh, they uh, spot us. Uh, they uh, communicate with the American Coast Guard and they came to our rescue. It was a funny story about it. Yes, I'll tell you what. So we're, so we're going to take a quick break and when we come back, let's pick up with that because a lot of our listeners uh, have never heard of Brothers to the Rescue, and, and I think we're, they're going to hear about it now because several American citizens uh, paid, a high, paid a high price. Yeah, so we'll, when we come back, we're going to hear that part of Santiago's story and talk more about some of his cases and also about his project, which is amazing, Cuba, a Repression ID. We'll be right back. And we're back. We're back again with Santiago Alpizar, uh, Miami attorney, human rights defender, uh, one of the founders of Cuba Repressor ID. And again, we're going to include a lot of links on our podcast to all this, all this uh, referencing of work that we're talking about because there's a, a few uh, amazing items that we've talked about that I think you should read about. Brothers to the Rescue. So you were telling us that you left Cuba basically on, you were the last of the, uh, the rafter generation, uh, which is an amazing, amazing group of people, brave people that from 1980 onward, and you know, they get a lot of negative press in the States, but uh, sometimes they do. But, but, <laughs> I know. The, but, but these men and women, and by the way, I, I have a very good friend in Miami, uh, who's a, a, a Mariel uh, fellow who came here and within very short span of time learned English and he became a lawyer also. So these are people who basically were kicked out. Yeah, there were some bad people in the group, but the overwhelming majority uh, came here seeking the American dream. You did this, and you did this at great risk to yourself. You were spotted by Brothers to the Rescue. This was a group of young men, Americans, who would fly over the Caribbean on these small planes, Cessna planes, looking for people like Santiago. It was a humanitarian mission. They would identify them. They would see rafters in the open seas, they would call the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard would then head out and save lives. This was a humanitarian mission. But Santiago is going to tell us how this, how first of all he's connected to this, but also what happened to this uh, remarkable organization a few years after you came. Right. By the way, if you came in '94, '96, right. something really bad happened. So go ahead and tell us what happened to you. Yes, I well, uh, yes, I was. Uh, as I tell you, we left Cuba. I believe was August 16, 1994. Uh, during the nighttime, of course, we were escaping from 
uh, what they call Brigada de Respuesta Rápida, people who are aging from the government, they are scum, trying to hit people who was leaving the country at that time. And we uh, would sneak out on the water with this little raft. We jump into the raft, open the sail, and start rowing. I was a great rower. Still, I am. <laughs> you still and, row? You still row? Yes, or, yeah? yes, 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 okay. yes. And uh, I learned when I was a little child, my father took me to one river in, in, in nearby my hometown and taught me how, how to row. And I, ever since I've been rowing, anything that you give me, a kayak, a canoe, or a boat, whatever. Right. Then, <laughs> well, when you, when, you have, come up, when you come up here to Virginia, we have a few great I will show you. But you did it to save your life. So, I mean, you rode. How, I, how, how long were you guys out there on the Caribbean doing this? We'll, we, uh, that night, we left Cuba around 2 o'clock in the morning. And uh, one of the, the, our guidance was uh, the burning tower of the petrol refinery in Havana. Wow. And uh, as soon as we lost that tower, we know that we are in the high sea already. Mm -hmm. So I, I think in myself, I, I was rowing for at least six hours. My hand was bleeding at that time. And uh, yeah, it was the, the day break, break, of course, and uh, we were just sailing and rowing for, I don't know uh, how many others hours. I remember that around four o'clock of the following day, say it again, we, we left around two o'clock in the morning and we were start uh, four o'clock of the following day. Uh, you figure we were doing like a 16 hours already in, in the water. Uh, brought it to the rescue flew over us, making sign that we were doing, we were going in the wrong place, okay? Oh wrong way, wrong way, wrong way. And Which is they, easy, by, uh, the, by the way, that's easy to do when you're out in the Caribbean and you're a little raft and you have no point of reference either, by the way. Uh, that's exactly right. We, uh, we had a small uh, compass, it was not reliable, but uh, it was hit, um, I mean, showing that we were in north, but in fact, we were in northwest, heading to the to the Gulf of Mexico, which is very treacherous water, and we can lose the immensity of the sea uh, that, going that way. It were, we were close to the land because we were uh, seeing, observing birds flying over us and the debris uh, floating in the water and everything else, but we were going to the wrong, uh, wrong di uh, direction. And in Brothers to the Rescue, that uh, uh, organization that was providing humanitarian help on the sea, supporting people that was escaping Cuba, uh, flew over us. Uh, they um, sent, uh, they dropped some uh, instrument, uh, instrument uh, signal, pistols, uh, signal with some cartridges and uh, some other devices that uh, allow us to be spotted easy is if we see any other vessel from the Coast Guard or something like that. And uh, as a matter of fact, after the, it happens around an hour later, around five o'clock in the afternoon, we spot in very far away, like uh, what the, the shape of what we thought was a chip from somehow. And right. we start, doing our signal, pistol fail a couple of times, finally, uh, it's like a movie, you know, yeah. you try, bang, fail, the other one, fail, me, try that one, try that one, well, this is the last chance, bang, he opened up wow. the fire, and uh, 
So you guys were fighting for your lives. I mean, every single yeah. one of those, every single one of those shots were like, if it doesn't work, we're in trouble. Exactly. It's like a man, like a, a suspense movie. Well, so, uh, so so thanks to the brothers to the rescue and the great people. I was I was rescued by the U.S. Coast Guard. That's wow. exactly right. Welcome and it was a, a funny what? story because I, when they came in the little boat, they say U.S. Coast Guard, and still I had a problem with my English. I had a very strong accent, but at that time I remember I grabbed the 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 sail and stop up for everyone and say, "Are you American Coast Guard?" The guy tell me in Spanish. Claro que sí, come mierda. ¿Quién te va a recoger aquí ahora? That's hilarious. And that's your welcome to America. You guys How oh, was my welcome to America? Of it's, course. It sounds, it sounds like an... Of course, Who else is going to pick you up you right know, here? It sounds like an Álvarez Hedes joke. You know, it sounds like... A, it was. It was my friend. It was. Oh, that's and a, now, amazing. Well, uh, and then uh, we went uh, uh, to a... a uh, a group card station in Key West. After that, we were all grouped and sent to a Crown Detention Center, which is an immigration facility here in Miami. We spent, I don't want to talk that much about what happened there, but I spent like a three months in detention and wow. there was clear out. Uh, and then the time passed as a Cuban. I adjust uh, my status of permanent residence as a Cuban adjustment for, through the Cuban adjustment after one year living in the state. I went back to a law school again, uh, study. Uh, it's a long story. But, no, that's good. Uh, no, that's, that, that's a great place to jump to the Bros to the Rescue and remind our listeners that not only is America to me an amazing country, and uh, I think this I is was always thank, thankful to the Brothers to the Rescue for what they did to me and so many other fellow yeah, viewers. I mean, this is like... Um, and I cannot forget, I cannot forget uh, February... Uh, 24, 1996, when they were in, in a, in a uh, humanitarian Pacific mission, flew flying over Cuba, and they were shot on the yeah. international water. Two of the plane was destroyed with all people in, in, inside, including two American, I believe it was two or four Americans. Yes, yeah, three, yeah, three Americans and a legal permanent resident. In fact, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, this is the American dream right here for Santiago, and he came in here, you could tell laws in his veins because he wanted to be a lawyer again and he can't tell people how difficult that is. In fact, my grandfather was a lawyer in Cuba and when he came here, he never wanted to, uh, he thought he was gonna go back and by the time he realized that he wasn't going back, he could never practice law again and that really, uh, he never talked about it but he missed the law because my grandfather loved the law and Santiago, that's amazing. Uh, you're able to so quickly reincorporate and the Brothers to the Rescue part of this, and this get, takes us back to the human rights issues that we, we, we talk about today. These are four men uh, who were killed, murdered by, by, by pretty much, uh, uh, it was calculated. It was, we know today that this was done on purpose. This was during the Clinton administration and the, uh, the Congress passed a law at the time. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the, pretty much the Cuban Air Force using military planes shot out of the sky two civilian airplanes. They murdered. Carlos Costa, Armando Alejandre, Mario de la Peña, and Pablo Morales. Four of those men were American citizens. They were my age. I'm 50 today. So these kids were, they, they, we, were we were in our early 20s, uh, late yep. 20s when, when that happened. So they were at the prime of their life. They were just starting out. They were humanitarians. These were young people who had careers. They would do this on the weekend. And they, their, their lives were snuffed out by, by 
uh, Cuban Air Force MiGs. Uh, to this very day, Governor DeSantis, by the way, when he was in Congress, uh, had a hearing where we testified with family members and uh, urging the Trump administration and uh, the U.S. government to uh, indict uh, the men and the men and, and women involved in the shootdown. And I'm still hopeful that will happen someday. Uh, we don't have enough time to talk about that today, but this is a good point to talk about the law again and why uh -huh. you believe so much in it. Because you pretty much could have been killed out there. You could have died. You still came here. You became a lawyer again. You help people in Miami because you practice law in Miami, but you also continue to help people back in your ancestral homeland and in places where you were born. Uh, why do you do it? Why is it so important uh, to do that sort of thing? I think our listeners Jay, would love so, to hear that. Jay, so you and I uh, uh, share something that is a very uh, powerful. It's uh, our Cuban blood. Yeah, and I was not only a Cuban because my parents were Cuban because I left. I lived in Cuba for thirty-three years. Um, I, and, and by the way, I, I've never been there, believe it or not. So I know, I know, it's I know unusual. But yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, but and that's going. exactly why. How how can someone dispute my, uh, the love that we share for Cuba? Is you that have never been there? But you have heard so many things about Cuba, about your father's history. Lost so much a country that you never been because you believe that you are it's part of your heritage. How can anyone dispute that we, the Cuban, share that much love for our country? Because one of the reasons why I'm saying this is because the communist country and regime is always hijacking the 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 love for the country for the reason to be a communist or, or, or a, regime, a regime supporter. But we Cubans love our country because we have something to share with it. It's family, it's friends, it's a story, heritage, culture. And that one is part of our uh, self-being. And that one is always allow us or, or oblige us to do something for our country, for our countrymen. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do here with my fellow lawyers, as you mentioned before, through this project, Cuban Repression ID. Uh, <clears throat> we are being- it's an amazing project. And, and so, so let's pick up there, uh, coming up on another break. So might as well wrap this up here. When we come back, we're gonna pick up with this uh, special project, Cuban Repressor ID, talk a little bit about that and the Cuban constitution because Santiago just said something that I think our listeners need to hear again about how the law is used against the people that it's supposedly trying to help. So we'll be right back. Santiago, Cuba Repressor yeah. ID. Lawyers Cuba. in Cuba, and, and we, we have all these different threads that we could follow, but I wanna to read to you something, and it is tied to Cuba Repressor ID. According to the Cuban constitution, this brand new one, by the way, the third or fourth one, I forget which one they had now. Now they just have a brand new one. It says that the ver in the preamble of their constitution, Santiago, before he went to the break, was saying how the Cuban Communist Party has smothered even the notion of nationhood because even though they claim to be patriots, it's not the nation first, it's the Communist Party first. And mm -hmm. one of their things they have in their constitution is that the party, the country is guided, and I'm, I'm going to read from their constitution, 
It's the, uh, the, the most advanced, revolutionary, anti-imperialist, Cuban Marxist, Latin American and universal thought and ideal that were done by the example of Marti and Fidel and the socialist emancipation ideas of Marx, Engels, and Lenin are pretty much part of the, and they add on to their, the international proletariat. So to them, this is what is important. The globalist movement's important. The, the, the Leninism, the communism, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're telling me that nation, family, that is it's secondary. Not part, it's not part it's of their not psyche. It's not part of the picture, right. exactly. Right. So how did all of this, how did you come out of this? I, I mean, when you came here, I know you went to Spain, you lived it, but you went back and you said, you know what? I'm now a lawyer here. This is what, what's happening in my ancestral homeland. I'm going to do this project, Cuba Repressor ID. What, what is that? And, and how can our listeners help in this, in this project? Well, this is a, a spontaneous project that we once uh, discussing the way that we can uh, open a, an umbrella of protection for people who was uh, protesting in Cuba a few years back and uh, through a television station here in Miami and with the help of Caraza, a, a very famous uh, uh, anchor uh, of this TV show, um, Man Olympia, uh, start uh, placing pictures of people who were repressing Damas de Blanco in Cuba. Dam, uh, uh, and then uh, people came up with an identification of those uh, uh, government operatives that was uh, hitting and maltreating those wow. people on the street. Wow. And uh, somehow at that point, they stopped abusing uh, the, these uh, Damas de Blanco when they came out at that time. So it was a great deal of encourage for us to continue working uh, to the so, point to identify those repressors uh, back in Cuba that were living among us here in Miami. So Santiago, let, let me ask you something. This two-part question. Why do you think, it, and I, it's a rhetorical question, you and I know the answer, but I want our listeners to hear this. Why does it matter that we highlight the abusers, and second, um, why does it matter as Americans? Uh, Jason, it's a very important, uh, because uh, those abusers are the, uh, the poster boy of the regime. Those, the one who can uh, really portray the tentacles of that repressive regime. If we identify those operatives, those repressors, we are dismantled the regime itself. And uh, it's very important because uh, today in America, we are seeing riots, people who want to impose one idea over the other by uh, um, burning, rioting, uh, hitting some other people with different ideas and ide ideology. And that one cannot happen here in the state. We need to stop this. And one of the ways to show American that that one is wrong is identifying and bring to the justice those people who make the kind of abuse in Cuba or some other place. Let me ask you something. Why do they, and you, you represent a lot of political prisoners, uh, and it's, it's a space that we work in also. What's your advice? Like, why is it important? 
to keep these cases alive in the media. Some, you know, sometimes lawyers, we use the media, especially in human rights work like this, we have to work with our friends in the media to keep attention on these cases. And in some, you know, sometimes you want media, sometimes you don't. But most of the time, it's important that we talk about these cases. Why do you think it's important in your experience for, because you, you've well, done a lot of work with some high profile people in, on the island. Why does it help to keep these cases in the media? It's, uh, it's important to keep the, the, the story alive. There's uh, always behind those uh, stories that is important to defend democracy and human rights. It's important for people to know what exactly happened to the victims of uh, any particular individual who repress, oppress, or uh, hit, uh, maltreat uh, other human beings in his own country. Sometimes those people are presenting as a uh, old guy, a, a family-oriented individual, when in fact they were the monsters. They, I had a, we had a case here. Um, he was already, uh, I believe, deported. I don't, don't remember even, I don't think it's important to mention his name. Uh, but he's a, uh, he was a, an operative from the DCA, of the Department of Security of the State in Cuba, in the province of Pinar del Rio. Uh, he was identified through uh, social media. We came to the case. We make a, um, our complaint before the FBI. The FBI investigated the case. And that guy was finally uh, brought to the justice and deported back to Cuba. But I heard this, the stories about the victim of this individual, a, a story that were not part of the case, uh, the legal case, because it, 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 the, the statute of limitation had been passed. But it was a woman who <clears throat> described uh, how she was raped by a guy, by a, co a common criminal that was placed in her cell. And this other individual was watching what happened. Wow. That one happened wow. in Cuba. That happened in a small town in the province of Pinar del Rio, in San Cristobal. And that, one also, uh, that, that particular incident uh, took place around 20 years ago. And all the protagonists of that horrendous event were living in the state, the victim and the repressor in charge. Uh, uh, fortunately, we identified that individual. That individual uh, lied in his uh, immigration application, and that one was the reason why he was sent back to Cuba. And I think it's important for our listeners to also know that in America, uh, especially people when they sign their immigration papers, they sign certain. Uh, they're swearing under penalty of you know. There's very serious. Yeah, there's a lot of criminal. Uh, criminals that sneak their way in, and there's a remarkable unit over at the um, Immigration and Customs Enforcement called the Human Rights Violators and War Crimes Unit. And these men and women were quietly, uh, nobody really knows about them, but they are responsible and they've been around since the early 2000s, and they have four very important missions, and, and, and includes preventing the admission into the U.S. of war crimes, suspects, human rights abusers, they they work to remove, and this is important. I want the friends of the Communist Party who are here in America to know this. They will remove whenever possible. We have a legal system, so we do it according to the law. You'll get due process here. Anybody yep. who's in this country who did what Santiago is talking about. And unfortunately, uh, Santiago and I know that over the years, 
uh, there have been some pretty bad people from Cuba and other countries, Venezuela, Nicaragua. That is uh, correct. Made it into America. I mean, what, what's your message to anybody, let's say in Miami, who's listening to this, who's a well, victim, we, and they have this watching, information? We are watching you. We are uh, investigating many cases. It's not just one or two individuals. They are a task force uh, with the FBI that is investigating uh, claims uh, made by common people that those individuals are living among us. And I, I can assure you that every single case will have an answer. Uh, I don't know whether they're going to be uh, charged with crime that they committed outside uh, the country because it's a jurisdiction uh, based on that act, uh, that federal act, I don't remember, but the one that you mentioned, that allow uh, the United States to uh, trial individuals who commit serious crimes uh, uh, abroad that right. are now living here in the state when the victims of those crimes are also living here in the state. So, uh, and, and again, we are using this alternative avenue that which is immigration law are being in contact with some people in Washington to explain how this uh, uh, application for benefits uh, under the Immigration Act that might be used to prosecute those individuals when the, the, the statute of limitation for the crime they committed abroad has expired, but not in immigration. Immigration has no statute of limitation to correct any That's mistake. Right. Right. in the benefit they, they provide to individuals who lies on those obligations. Uh, yes, that was a very, very, very important instrumental uh, law that we are using to fight those, uh, those abusers. And, and it I also think, happened... Mm -hmm. Go ahead, go ahead. Finish no, I was, I was uh, just to mention one uh, anecdote for, to, uh, with another individual who was the... Uh, he was uh, in charge of the Department of Jails in, in uh, my province, in, in Santa Clara. And one of the, um, uh, the well-known dissident in Cuba, Coco Farinha. Coco Farinha, day, that's right. Yep. That's right. Coco Farinha one day aired his complaint uh, through an interview, being, he being in Cuba, and the uh, interview here in, my, in Miami. And I, it happened that I listened to that conversation between the two, and he was claiming that a guy who repressed him, who maltreated him when he was in jail, was living in Miami. And uh, that I, I, it shocked me, you know? And uh, I started investigating, well, you know, calling names, people, it's from my hometown, you know? And then uh, I find out where that guy was living. And we sent a, a TV crew uh, to his house, and he basically admitted that he was the guy in charge of the jail department in the province of Santa Clara. He deports himself back to Cuba. That's because an amazing story. And, and that's, by the way, that's the way it's supposed to work. And, and I'm glad, Santiago, that you're so open about this because sunshine is the best disinfectant. And in, in America, I think people need to remember access to the U.S. Is a, is a privilege. It's not a right. You don't have a right to be here in most cases. And right. uh, if you are a gross violator of human rights, no matter what country you're from, and the victim learns about your presence here, that person has rights and can turn to advocates like Santiago and his team uh, to help them. 
And I think they should. If people in Miami listen to this, which we know they do, I strongly encourage them to reach out to Santiago because you, you let us know because we will help you. And it's yes. something that we have your back here in Washington if you need us. Thank you. Uh, we Thank will you definitely help you and push these because we have to, you know, the future of Cuba, Santiago, and I think you'll agree with this. It's up for the people of Cuba to decide, but uh, we can help them the way you're helping them and any country we can help them in, in these little ways. Why is it important though uh, for any American? I think you've given the, given the many reasons as we end up our, com as we finish our conversation, but um, you know, we don't want to force Cuba what to do. You know, Cuba can do whatever they want to do. It's their country. It's their future. However, with a country uh -huh. just 90 miles away, with such great people from Cuba here like you and Miami, the whole exile community, the diaspora, uh, who may want to help in Cuba's reconstruction someday, including its legal system. I mean, what message do you have for people in Cuba, but also to Americans who maybe do not know as much about this issue? Why is it important? It's important because it's the only, uh, I think uh, the, the legal fight seeking civility in a democracy is the highest manner of way to show your regard for living in peace in a society. And uh, that's the reason why, uh, Jason, besides doing this project of uh, Cuban Repression ID, we also instrument what we call Cuba Demanda to empower people in Cuba to use the, the law of the land, the one that is current uh, practicing in Cuba, to turn against the regime. We provide people ways and manners and process that they can fight for their rights before uh, the Cuban tribunals against the regime, bringing those people who commit uh, a, a negligence, a, uh, violent acts against the people who are living peacefully in his house and have to confront these crowds of people shouting against them. And we provide people in Cuba with their uh, instrument, legal instrument, how to fight those uh, individuals from the home, from the hometown that dare to maltreat them in their home, in their own houses. This is important also. To people in Cuba know that there are uh, there are many ways in in in, in that we can defend uh, individuals that are uh, are repressed in their schools. You know that I explained to you one, and you know that uh, I know that you are also involved in one case where they uh, they are infringing in the in, in the in the religion's rights of of the Cuban people when they are in, in the school, you know? Oh, the whole, yeah, that's right, that's right. The homeschool case and the uh, the other case over with our Jewish friends, yep. That, that's exactly, I know, I'm very familiar with that case. And also I had a case that I mentioned you uh, during our private conversation of a little girl that was, uh, his uh, backpack was cut by another child because she was the daughter of a dissident and the boy that cut the, uh, the backpack uh, in front of everyone was the, the, the son of the leader of the one of the Respuesta Rapida brigade that was uh, shouting and uh, confronting dissidents in Cuba. I personally wrote a letter to the Minister of Education in Cuba, signed also by the pattern of this, of this leader, Gerd, and the Minister of, of Education went down to that place in a small town in Hibara, in the province of Holguin, and they fixed the situation. 
they left that that little girl alone. And it's a great satisfaction for me that she's calling me his uh, godfather. Well, you know, it's it's you know, you're you're a, a, a true and true. Not only you're a jurist, but you're also a patriot. And uh, you could be doing anything else. You don't have to be doing this. You could spend all your time working on cases here in the states. But you 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 could tell you still feel that tug. And what you've described uh, to to uh, to listeners is something I call civil. You know, it's it's the way lawyers in Cuba engage in civil disobedience. Uh, they a lot of these lawyers do this at great risk. Uh, it's a it's a very small space, but it's an important space that Santiago and his team are providing to help people. And you're almost uh, creating this uh, awakening because a lot of people in Cuba are not used to going to lawyers because they're scared. They oh, is the lawyer working for the party? Who are they, you know, what, yeah, what are they doing? Why are they asking me for help? So that that's not even a culture you have in Cuba. But they, but the fact that you do this, Santiago, with 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 your team. And that you're, you you can help people so far away and reawaken at least. Hey, there's some modicum. There's another way to do things that doesn't involve intimidating people, scaring people, threatening people, and it's very empowering. And uh, that's something that over time I think uh, helps create that spark where we don't know where it'll come from, but at some point that civil disobedience, those lawyers using that little space they have to risk a lot because some of these lawyers and we're wrapping up now because we're out of time, but some of these lawyers, as you know, uh, sometimes become the targets of repression too, when they help families do this sort of thing. That is correct. Uh, I, I did, uh, I was myself and, uh, so many others. Uh, so it's a, it's a, uh, people who elect to be a lawyer defending people in Cuba have to run the, with the risk to be targeted by the uh, Cuban, uh, Repressor, uh, repressors and the political police. Well, that's why we have two, uh, uh, two great sources of information that we're going to provide our listeners so they can learn more about what you do and how you do it. We'll, 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 we'll provide that link and maybe some people can help some of these lawyers in Cuba who need that help. Santiago, it's been a pleasure uh, to have you with us. I hope you have a, a, a great weekend. And do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners? <laughs> Well, uh, thank you very much for the invitation to your program, my friend. And uh, again, we had uh, to defend uh, democracy, to defend our freedom, to defend our liberty. That's the whole point. And we can do it all together. Amen. All Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, Santiago. It's great talking to you and have a great weekend, okay? You do, my friend. Thank all you. All right. Bye-bye.